Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, live. Welcome to Broadway Bullet. This is your host, Michael Gilbo, and we're back for episode 111. And we got a lot of great stuff for you. We've got Paul Vogt, who's currently starring as Edna in Hairspray on Broadway. We've got a couple songs that we're going to hear from the new Fame Becomes Me soundtrack and from an overlooked goodie, uh, a man of no importance. We're going to talk with Scott Allen Evans of Tact about their production of The Sea. In On the Boards, we've got the political comedy, View from K Street Steak, and a whole bunch more. Now, I believe we've been getting a lot of new listeners. I know where a lot of people are listening to the MP3 feed more and more. And I wanted to let those of you who are new to this know that if you have iTunes or an iPod and you subscribe through the iTunes Music Store. It's real easy. The link is on the front page of broadwaybullet.com. You get an enhanced version of the podcast that allows you to skip between chapters so you can move back and forth to the parts you like. You can see pictures of everything going on. It's it's real easy, and it's a great way to get involved with the show. And you make sure you don't miss an episode because every time you turn on iTunes, it'll look to see if our new episode is up. So subscribe in iTunes if you've got it. It's a, it's a great addition to the program. Let's not waste any time and jump into the program. Up close. I'm not exactly a theater snob, but I'd lie to say that I haven't felt a little disappointed at the replacements that had been announced in the past for Harvey Firestein in Hairspray the Musical. But when I saw that Paul Vogt was playing the role, I was definitely intrigued. His comic timing has been impeccable on Mad TV, and he's even had his uh, rather famous impersonation of Mrs. Garrett from Facts of Life. And joining us in the studio is Paul Vogt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's <laughs> nice to be here. Well, I saw the show last night, or um, on Wednesday night, yep. and I have to say, I really was. I was not disappointed. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I saw Harvey Firestein in the original, and you really made it your own, and you stole the show. You had the crowd going. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun to do, and it's a great role, and uh, I enjoy doing it way too much, maybe. <laughs> Now, I was familiar with your Mad TV stuff, um, and I've always been a fan of the show. I felt it was underrated. But um, I looked at your bio, and I was surprised to see so much theater on there. I don't know why that surprised me, but you've definitely done a lion's share of theater around. Yeah, I mean, this is the the biggest thing I've done, and it's always been a dream to to hit Broadway. And what a way to hit it. (laughs) Like, in one of the best musicals in the last 20 years, and in this role, it's... Incredible to do. But, yeah, I went to college. I'm from Buffalo, New York, originally, and I went to college there and did a lot of theater. I did a lot of theater even when I was in high school. So theater has been definitely in my blood. And uh, along with it was improv. I've been doing improv since I was in high school, too, because I loved the not knowing what's coming next factor of it and stuff. And so uh, I love mixing the two together. And, yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. TV is actually – TV and film is the newer thing. So – there's that. 
Was what are some of your favorite roles you played in the past? Just to go dig that up a little bit. Um, I did in Orlando. We did a production of Assassins that I really enjoyed doing, and I played Sam Bick, who tries to kill Nixon. And in the show, he he's he's got these two big monologues, and they're kind of comic, but then they go to a really dark, dramatic edge. And I'm actually trained like in Shakespeare and. And uh, I love tragedies, and I like to do drama, but it's more fun to make people laugh. So <laughs> I don't get that opportunity very much. So uh, I loved playing that role. It was really great. And I got to do um, – there was a show, El Grande de Coca-Cola, which is this ridiculous show that was done, I think, in the 70s, maybe off-Broadway. And we did that again in Orlando, and it uh, it was really fun. It was Papa Pepe Hernandez who has this family that he thinks is the most talented family in the world, and they're not. And the whole show is him passing his family off as all these professional performers. So I did that. And I also did Dogberry in uh, Much Ado About Nothing. And that was a really, that was one of the best uh, things I got to do. Also in Orlando. <laughs> Crazy. So that's theater-wise. And uh, TV-wise, I've, I've been really lucky. I've had some good times. Again, it's so funny. My br- I have a twin brother, identical twin brother, and we did uh, an episode. Oh, I, I was wondering. I, I, I saw that in your bio, but I was wondering if that was maybe sometimes there's little quips and jokes <laughs> that actors make that are real. That wasn't no, sure. he's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's also an actor. He's in L.A. doing his thing, too. And every now and then people use us together. And they used us in um, Chicago Hope when it was on, when we first went out to L.A. And we got to play these conjoined twins. They had built this, like, real-looking bodysuit that we wore so that they could take our shirts off and show that we were connected by the side. And in the first episode we did, we were kind of the funny side dish. And uh, in the second episode, they liked us so much that they wrote this episode where he dies and I won't let them separate us. And I have, like, this five-minute, like, death scene thing with Lauren Holly and Barbara Hershey's in it. And that was really great to get to do. Because, again, they saw us as really funny, but they also knew that we could be honest and real and... They gave us this great opportunity to do that. So um, I like that. I like everything I do. Not <laughs> I think I'm great. I'm brilliant. No, I just love performing. So anytime I get a chance, I try to, you know, the old adage of he's chewing up the scenery. I eat the whole place. Now, this isn't, Broadway isn't the first place you did hairspray. No, I have, <laughs> I'm kind of a freak with the hairspray. I did Vegas. I took over for Harvey Firestein in Vegas. So I did the 90-minute version there. And then um, I did the first regional production in Boston this past fall. And then uh, they asked me if I would like to do this. And I said, yes, of course, the Broadway. So I have a 90-minute version from Vegas, which they took out certain scenes, certain songs, and then at times even certain lines. So uh, the script is really condensed, and it was a great show, very energetic, no intermission. Uh, the, you know, the cast was amazing, and it was just really bright and fun, and it was big. The stage there was like the size of a football field. It was huge, and the orchestra would come out at the end from behind, and the Von Tussles would be riding on the orchestra, and it was, it was great. And then the one I did in North Shore in Boston um, is in the round, so <laughs> that was very odd. And uh, it was a different director with different choreography because it was the first regional. So they could use a certain percentage of the real choreography, but it was mostly all new. So I had that sort of thing going on, like in the round with a different director's uh, perception, which wasn't too far from what we do here. And then I got to come here and do the the actual you know, full script with the intermission and all the scenes, all the lines intact. 
which I kept getting reminded, say that word. Say that line. Do that. <laughs> was that a little confusing sometimes? Having to it was. Things? It was a little confusing. I mean, I got it. I think I have it down now. <laughs> I think by now I've got it. But um, How long have you been in the show now? Uh, I think it's been like nine weeks now, nine or ten. It's going too fast. I have to be honest. It's really fun. It's going way too fast. So You know, there are roles that are like, that I, I would imagine most actors would jump into without much hesitation, you know, as a replacement. Right. And then there's this role, which probably has one of the biggest stamps on it. You know, I, I imagine this has got to be a role that you, you think a little bit about actually what you're filling in and the heritage of it. And what, what were the thoughts running through your head when you decided to come on to Broadway? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I'll I, I'll be honest. Like when I took over uh, when I took over Vegas from Harvey Firestein, I worked with him for two weeks, and he's he's a great guy. I mean, I. I adore him as a as a person, but you have you know as a performer he's amazing and um, he's you know he's kind of kind of brilliant the way he can use his voice. It's a whole it's a he shouldn't be able to by God he shouldn't be oh, able to speak. He's, by... It's amazing his <laughs> his comic timing. I mean just he embodies the character of Edna so well as an actor, and then the voice is this great tool that he can use for dramatic effect or um, for comic effect. You know, when he would answer the phone, he would be like, hello. And you would just bust up. And he knew it. But it was also, it came from the reality of Edna. You know, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to watch him and to study him and figure out what he was doing. And to know I couldn't, there's no way I could do his voice. The biggest mistake you could ever do is to try and play Edna and try and be Harvey Firestein. Because he, you know, he was playing Edna the way he played it, you know. So to copy Harvey doing it doesn't make sense. And he gave me great advice. He was said, you know, she's a mother. She's a wife. Just be good to her. Just just go, you know, go for the ride and just be good to this mother and wife who really loves her family. And that's really what you have to do. And then on the technical side of it, you do have to drop your voice every now and then, I found, because you have to set up certain jokes, that won't work if the audience has never heard you talk in a deep voice and you come in during the motor mouth scene and go, excuse me, then they're going to be like, where did that come from? So you do have to find, I know that I figured out that you have to find moments to play the the lower part of your range. You know, I don't want to slam some of the people who came before you because I didn't see them. But Right, so they're all lovely, nice But people. it's hard for me to imagine, for instance, Bruce Valanche giving the honesty that you know, is needed for this role. I saw Bruce Valanche do it in uh, in L.A. on the tour with Marissa uh, Winoka, who who you know won the Tony and played the role. Um, and I I had done Happy Days of the Musical with her, and uh, it was good. It was great to see her do the role. Bruce had he did have an honesty. I felt in it. He was adorable, and I know it sounds so weird to put the word adorable and Bruce Valance <laughs> together in a sentence, but there was something really adorable about his Edna, and I don't know if it was his, um, you know, I, I, he's not really a song and dance man, but he got up there and he did what he could, and he did what he did, and that's what I felt was honest about it, is that he wasn't trying to do more than he could or trying to become something else. He was doing Bruce playing Edna, which I think that's the honesty. I think that brings, when you bring a piece of yourself to the role, then you're being honest. And I felt that he did. I, I don't know. He cracked. I, <laughs> like I, I, I didn't I, see it, so I can't. I can't. Yeah. Judge. But you, defi- you definitely did. And I think. Oh, thanks. I think a lot of people. I mean, the movie's beloved by drag queens. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think it's it would be easy to miss in there that with that kind of larger than life attitude that this needs to really be played like a real 
person. Yeah, I mean, I look at it as an acting piece. I, and I, I have, I don't know why. I know I play a lot of women. And there's something about that that I think if I, a large man, can convince people that I'm a woman, then I feel like I've done my job as an actor. And I've always felt that because I've been playing women uh, since I was in high school, like back in Buffalo, I did a production of No No Nanette, and they didn't, they couldn't find anybody that was funny for the role of the maid. Like they didn't feel anybody had the comic timing. So the the director and choreographer asked if I would play the maid, but they wanted to just put me in the program as like P vote. They didn't want anybody to know I was a guy. And I said, Yeah. And I took that as a challenge, you know, as an actor. Like, can I pass myself off? And it worked. And it was ridiculous. I'm sure it wasn't great. I was only like, you know. <laughs> Five, so, but um, but it was fun to do, and I, I loved. I mean, that's one of the things I love improv because I love the not knowing what's coming next, and and you know when you get somebody you're working with and they toss something back at you, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I get such a rush off of that. So, yeah, I like playing the piece as an actor, really playing a role as opposed to I'm a guy in a dress. I'm Edna, you know. It's I want to play the I want to play the character and get to the meat of it. So. Now, Mad TV. Yes. What was that experience like? How long? How long are you on? It was. Long. I did three years. I did three years, which was good. Um, I had an out after my third year because, uh, be- actually, because of my brother, I didn't want to be stuck on a show without him because we'd always hoped to do something together. <laughs> and then I left and ended up doing like Hairspray in Vegas, and I've been doing a lot of stage work since then. And now I'm here, and he's in LA working. So we're still working on our thing. We're still working. But um, it was great. I had a great time. We would do live shows in front of an audience. And the difference between us and Mad TV is that our stuff gets edited. So we can, I mean, between us and Mad TV, <laughs> between <laughs> us and Saturday Night Live, is they're live. And so you get to see all their flubs, and which are hysterical, and you know all their stuff. We filmed in front of a live audience. But if something didn't work, we could go back and fix it because it would be edited for air. When it when you saw the show, okay, I, I actually didn't realize. I knew they were edited, but I didn't realize they were yeah. still in front of a live audience. Yeah, we would do. Um, it was kind of a one week on, one week off. Like one week we'd have the audience, and then one week we'd do you know what they call location stuff, where we'd go out and film, you know, in in the area. But what we'd also do with those the things that we filmed without an audience, we would show them, you know, while the sets were being moved around in front of the live audience, we would show the stuff we filmed the week before. So we always had a live audience reaction. So it's never. I think it's very rarely, like if they filmed something quick and had to get it on air because it was topical and timely, maybe they would put in canned laughter for those few, really tiny few things. Other than that, all the, all the laughter is from a live audience. But uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a great time. It, was, it gets a little crazy. Like you'll hear, you have to pitch things. You have to, Tuesdays we would read like 30 sketches and only seven would be picked. You know, and you'd have one that was like, so you wanted it so bad, but maybe the president did something stupid that week and we needed to get it on. And so it, it gets a little political and a little crazy that way. But, you know, once you, you're you up and running and doing it, it's it's great. And I had a great – the group I was with there is great. I still talk to most of them. You know, a lot of them have moved on to great stuff too. So I enjoyed it. Is it a lot like you hear the stories about Saturday Night Live where you're all very cutthroat trying to get your spots for that week? And I think we're a little bit different than Saturday Night Live in that respect. I don't know exactly how it works there um, because I've heard things have been – because, again, it's a live show. I think it's a different vibe there. And I've heard things that, like, you know, they might rehearse it all the way to Friday and then somebody will say, you know, it's not working. And on Saturday afternoon, they're rehearsing a sketch – 
that's going on that night in front of a live audience. So that pressure and that that's insane, you know, and they do it and they pull it off. And sometimes you'll watch the show and you might see a sketch that's like, oh, that's a little clunky. It's probably because they just did it an hour or two before because maybe something else wasn't working and something they rehearsed. With us, it's it's a. Uh, you know, like I said, we have those Tuesdays where you would read all these sketches and you'd want it to get picked and then it didn't or whatever. And so you would just whatever they gave you that week, you would work on. And so you always had something to work on. And I, I never felt like it was ever cutthroaty, like somebody was trying to screw somebody else over or somebody was getting, you know, bumped. I mean, there were things that were picked and pushed and you were like, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? And you had to sort of fight for those or you'd be like, you know, I only did two things last week. I want to do more. So you had to generate your your heat, as it were, but not not to a, not to an insane proportion, I guess. And you're teaching now as well, aren't you? I have taught. Yeah, I'm not right now because I'm a large woman on Broadway. But uh, yeah, I've taught improv. I've done. I've taught some in uh, Orlando, and uh, I've tried to do some in L.A. Yeah, I love I love a good improv workshop. <laughs> It cracks me up. <laughs> it's definitely not not a you know a torturous thing to do. Oh no, no, I love it. I like showing people like you know a lot of people think improv. There's there's really a skill to improv, and there are what you know we call improv tools. And there is a there's definitely a right way of doing it. And then some people I think teach it real rigid, and it's it's improv. You're supposed to just take what happens and do something with that and move on. And uh, my friend Mo Collins. You know, she came from a group called Dudley Riggs out of Minneapolis. And so I got I, I was lucky. I worked with people with Dudley Riggs from Second City, from the Groundlings. So I like collected all of their best ideas because I got to work with them. And I, you know, and my improv is based on that is based on all of these great improv companies that I've had a chance to, like, you know, touch upon. And uh it's great. I mean, improv, like, you know, think of it as a gift. Like when you're in a scene, you're talk to someone, they talk back. You're giving them a gift. They're giving you a gift. And it just makes it fun. So I like to impart that type of thing and let people know that there is, you know, you need to lay a base and layer an improv scene and then find the ending. It shouldn't ramble on. And and it's fun. It's really fun when you see people get it and you see them really employ it. It just, it gets me crazy. I love it. <laughs> so if you were to give one tip, like one tool that you think maybe is the most important one for for improv. For improv, listen. Yeah, you just listen because it's all there. I mean, people give you everything if you just listen to the person across from you. And then and again, I think that one of the best things I ever heard was give a gift because then you, you it's not about it's not about you being clever and funny. It's about you giving something to someone else. You give the gift and then be gracious enough to accept a gift. You know, so if I say, hey, this frog will make you well, then the person should take the imaginary frog and say, thank you for this frog and lick it and say, I see colors, you know, so then that's a gift back to me, you know. So it's a nice interplay between the two. So I would say, listen and give a gift, accept a gift. <laughs> And next week on Chakra 101. <laughs> All right. So how long are you in Hairspray now? Do you know? um, right now I'm here till June 3rd, but you never do know. Mm -hmm. So, Do you have any pl anything else you're eyeballing on Broadway? Hmm. <laughs> any, any plea you'd like to get out there? <clears throat> uh, well, I always thought I'd be a good alphabet in Wicked. <laughs> and... 
Let's see. I think I should take over for Sutton Foster in Drowsy Chaperone. You, that brings up one last night. This seems to be a show that it seems to be a real point of pride, I think, for people who are overweight. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not really overweight. I just I wear a bodysuit all the time. I only weigh 100 pounds. But for those that are. <laughs> I mean, at the stage door or anything, do you see? Do you see any of this where... Well, you know what it is? It's I think because in go back to the movie with Ricky Lake. I mean, she was a big girl and by all she should never have been a movie star by Hollywood standards and she should never have been a star of a film, let alone a film about dancing and stuff. And John Waters who's just so great cuz he sees the world, you know, as as what it really is. I mean, come on, America, we're big people mostly, you know. And uh she was normal. She was just she's not abnormal, she was normal and this is what probably did happen or or could have happened. So I think what it is is it speaks to not just like, you know, heavy people, but I mean, what's even heavy now? If you go by Hollywood standards or, you know, the thin as a rail thing, you could be 10 pounds overweight and not be normal as far as they're concerned. But you do see a lot of people. It's it's really just about being who you are and being yourself and accepting yourself and, you know, loving yourself. There's so many messages in the show that come out in a brilliant way. None of them hit you in the face. They're not overly political, but they're real and they're honest. And and uh, you do see, I do see a lot of people who say it's their first Broadway show and they loved it. It was funny and they were surprised at how much it meant. So I think it does touch upon a lot of people. I have not seen like groups of large people <laughs> crying for my autograph. <laughs> and if you're out there, you come. You come, you larges, you fatties, you overly... Eaters, <laughs> we'll have a party. <laughs> All right. Well, I thank you so much for coming down. Thanks, Mike. It was fun. Yes. And best of luck with the rest of your run. Thanks. Listening room. Ghostlight Records under Shikaboom Records has just released the Broadway cast album for Martin Short's Fame Becomes Me, and we're going to hit you up with a song from that. The song is performed by Martin Short, Nicole Parker, Brooks Ashmanskas, and Mary Birdsong, and is written by, of course, Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman. Here's Big Titties from Fame Becomes Me. Babies, babies, life's greatest joy, so innocent, pure, and easy to Welcome on my bow I want mommy's arms To hold me through the nights But most of all I want those things What's pointing at me now I want those big titties Big titties I've only been alive one day But no enough to say I want those big titties Those twin cities Let's tout on on those mounds of joy Wow You are one homie son of a bitch 
How are you, baby boy? Well, actually, I'm pretty thirsty. Nurse, anything with gin in it, please. Look at my mom's shape. Yes, some may call her gaunt, but all in all, I guess things could be worse. But your mom's got no rack, she's got no form to flaunt. I'll tell you what, you take my mom, I'm gonna nail that nurse. She's got some big titties, big titties. I like big cups and triple E's, just supersize me, please. I want those big melons, like Mount St. Helens. Those boobies were a goddamn toy. Hey, look at this. It's a baby who's a lady. How are you, Miss Missy Miss? I do so good. I got adopted by two homosexual men. Oh, boy. Look at my two dads. They have exquisite taste. But who needs taste? They, they ain't got, got tit for tot. Sure, they have nice pecs, but those pecs are a waste. Someday you'll have to pay a shrink because you never got to swing on big titties. Big titties. Gay marriage means you got two pals, but what if they were gals? Then you'd have more titties. Oh, yeah, four titties. Oh, Just perfect for a hungry boy. Those tatas are my kind of toy. I just went pee pee. We're hungry, so we big, big titties. Pick up fame becomes me from Amazon.com or iTunes or fine retailers anywhere. That was big titties from the Shikabooms Ghostlight release of Martin Short Fame Becomes Me. We have a new play by a writer that is normally known for doing dark works, performed by a company that presents works it's hard to find in New York City, Tact. We have the director of The Sea here with us today, Scott Allen Evans. How are you doing? Great. Thanks, Michael. How are you? Good. So, first off, tell us about The Sea, which is opening when? Uh, we start previews on April 21st, and the official opening is the 26th. The Sea is a, a remarkable play, actually. Uh, what TACT does is uh, kind of mines forgotten plays, sometimes neglected plays, uh, to find great theatrical literature that uh, still resonates with contemporary audiences. We're not, you know, the company's not particularly interested in doing history plays or becoming... Uh, or, or providing, you know, historical uh, lessons. We look for we look in the past for plays that um, have a lot of resonance to us now, and we certainly feel that about the sea. It's by Edward Bond, who uh, is very well known in England and and in Europe. Actually, he's got a huge following in Europe, uh, but rarely done here in the States. And this is uh, one of his more unusual plays because, as you mentioned, Bond is known primarily for very dark, often violent plays, and The Sea is uh, his comedy. Uh, it's a very funny, very uh, interesting, thought-provoking, provocative play uh, that takes place in uh, 1907 in a very small East Coast seaside town in England, and there's kind of a threat that's, that's approaching, kind of an unknown threat. It starts... Um, well, let me just say this. Bond wrote, as you may know, a play called Lear, which was his adaptation of Shakespeare's King Lear. And he wrote The Sea right after that. And uh, he clearly was in his Shakespearean mode and focused a lot of The Sea, uh, based The Sea, on uh, several Shakespearean plays, but certainly uh, took a great deal of inspiration from The Tempest. The play, The Sea, starts with this huge storm and, and uh, a shipwreck, uh, which is certainly 
also reminiscent of Twelfth Night, too. <laughs> so, uh, now, he has, uh, a, he has kind of a lyrical, almost kind of poetic style, isn't it? Absolutely. So how does that translate for comedy? Is it more like one of Shakespeare's comedies, or is it um, a, a looser, kind of more contemporary comedy? How does that work it's out? A very, that's a very interesting question. Uh, yes, there's a great deal of kind of Shakespearean humor. Uh, there are even uh, a nod to the rude mechanicals from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in the play. But also, it has a real Shavian quality. And even uh, nods to Oscar Wilde. So certainly a British, a very particularly British sense of humor, but very witty, very sharp. And because it's Edward Bond, uh, a lot of the humor is a little dark, but hysterically funny. And also there are, there are lovely lyrical moments uh, and very moving moments as well. Bond was... Um, a brilliant writer and very thoughtful. He had a lot of uh, theories about uh, how we should live and what it means to be human. Uh, and a lot of that comes through in, in this play in a, in, I think in a very accessible way, in some ways more success, uh, accessible than some of his other darker, more oppressive plays. Now, you've been artistic director for TACT for 14 years? Yeah. And it's a very actor-driven company. Yes, in fact, I'm co-artistic director with uh, actors Cynthia Harris and Simon Jones. Uh, and TACT is unusual in that it really is actor-run and actor-driven. We have a, a repertory company of about 30 actors. Uh, we also have uh, designers and composers who are part of the company. And all the work is generated by that group. We all look for plays. We all suggest plays. We're very, everyone is very involved in the kind of work we do and how we do it. Now, so then when you come into settling on a play, when you have such a large community of actors, are you looking for something that's kind of more ensemble-driven than lead-driven? Well, absolutely. When we pick our seasons, it really is quite a puzzle because we have kind of very specific guidelines in what we define as neglected, uh, which basically is a play that hasn't been seen in New York City but in a professional way in at least 15 years, although many of the majority of the plays we do haven't been seen in 20, 30, 40 years, sometimes more. And then we also need to pick plays that really utilize the actors from the company. And we also want to balance the season, so it's, it has a great range of comedy and drama and, and from different countries. So uh, it, it's a real jigsaw puzzle that we try to, uh, that we try to manage each season. But yes, we do concentrate a lot on what would be great plays for the actors we have. So now with this one, what were some of the attributes do you think that the actors found about the sea that they were like really interested in? Well, it truly is an ensemble play. There are there are 13 roles in this play and uh, I would say the vast majority are fantastic parts. And the challenges of the style of the play are also really uh, fascinating uh, be because of the tone of its its mixture of dark and light, if it's humor and drama. Those are really great challenges for all of us as we've been exploring this work. And the other thing that's important for TACT when we pick plays, we, we're very interested. Our, our aesthetic is really about creating theater from the text and the actor's craft. Because we're actor-driven, you know, we're not interested, particularly interested in you know, the set and the, and the physical production, although it's important. Um, our focus is really on making theater from, you know, from a plank and a passion and using the text and the actor's ability to, and craft to bring it alive is what we find it makes theater most vital for us. 
So that was the other important thing about the sea is that it's so language-driven, language is so important, and it's through language the story is told primarily that uh, attracted us to this fantastic play. All right, we're going to switch gears for a second because you're also heavily involved in another project that I think a lot of our listeners might be interested in, and that's the American Musicals Project. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you can describe this because I, I thought this sounded fascinating. The American Musicals Project is a, a program that comes out of the New York Historical Society, and it's a program for 7th and 8th grade middle school originally designed for New York City public middle school kids, and it uses great musical theater masterworks to help teach social studies and English language arts. So what the program does is follow the state-mandated requirements for social studies because in 7th and 8th grade, kids learn American history in a continuum. So we follow the state-mandated requirements, and we've created academic units that follow those requirements and tied a musical or sometimes in some cases more than one musical to each unit and we provide um, a comprehensive guide that includes lesson plans and material from the musical. If there's an extant movie, we have clips, we include lyrics, sometimes script, and a, a huge amount of primary sources, historical primary sources from the New York Historical Society vast um, collection. And we put that all together and we take that and we train New York City public school teachers to use that material help teach this to their kids. And what we found is that um, the students respond unbelievably well to the material, which is you know great, fantastic material, as we all know, and tend to retain information better, tend to learn history better, tend to enjoy the learning process more. So it's been an incredibly successful program. We started eight years ago uh, with three pilot schools, one in Manhattan, one in Brooklyn, and one in the Bronx. And now we're in over 400 schools, and we reach over 20,000 kids a year. Can you give us maybe like a specific example of one of the, the packages and units and how it relates to the curriculum? Sure, absolutely. So let's say a, a teacher has to uh, teach post-Civil War Reconstruction, uh, which she does have to do, or he. Um, so they can pull out our showboat unit and follow if they like, follow our particular lessons. And what we do is we train them to how to teach with video, how to teach with music, um, because those are specific skills. Are the students shocked to find out that in the Civil War Reconstruction that there were guys singing Old Man River? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what's interesting about the showboat uh, unit particularly is there are two film versions. There's a version from the 1930s and a version from the 1950s. So what we also do is compare those two versions because they're very different and they show real uh, change in race relations. Um, the 1930s version is much more of an integrated movie. There, uh, the the African-American characters are involved, they're, they're real, they're fully drawn. In the 1950 version, it's really interesting, but the, the, the African-American characters are almost invisible. And that's part of the lesson to, to talk about, well, why was that? How, how does history reflect that through the medium as well? And then what we do is we train the teachers, as I said, to use this material. And that's primarily what we do. It's not a performing program. Uh, it's, an ac it's truly an academic program. All right. Now, I understand this is new. I, I doubt you'll get flooded, but if we do have, like, any teachers out there outside of New York, is there a chance of this program being opened up to some of those? They should definitely contact the New York Historical Society uh, and ask for um, the head of the American, the, the, the coordinator for the American Musicals Project. 
Okay. And I think it's AmericanMusicalsProject.org. But all right, so we got that, and jumping back to the sea, that's at the Beckett Theater on Theater Row. That's right. That's the one of the great new multiplexes here. In- it's it's fantastic, actually. We've been we've been at Theater Row for several times. Um, this we've done our whole season there. We're in residence. We're one of the resident companies there, and we'll be there again next year, which we're very happy about. A few years ago, we did a play called The Triangle Factory Fire Project at Theater Row. Uh, you wrote that one, didn't you? I wrote and directed it. Yeah, along with Christopher Peeler, and uh, that was a big hit for for Tact, and in fact has been has gone on to uh, many productions all over the country. And I understand your last production just got raves from the New York Times, too. So. Yeah, that was a wonderful way to start this season. We did a production of Home by David Story. Uh, and, yeah, we did great. We got fantastic reviews, and we're hoping that will help propel us into the sea. All right. Well, if our listeners are looking to catch the sea and see what TACT is all about, uh, where's the best place they can get tickets? You can get tickets uh, through Ticket Central, TicketCentral.com, or through the TACT website at TACTNYC.org. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming down as you get ready to launch this production. Thanks so much, Michael. The Call Board. First off, I want to let everybody know, go to broadwaybullet.com and sign up as a registered user because we're going to be having giveaways. In fact, you just missed one that came up out of the blue. We gave away three copies of Martin Short's Fame Becomes Me CD. We're going to announce the winners next week. I believe we got a couple other giveaways coming up this week. So make sure you're signed up, because the only people who get in on the giveaways are our registered users. And it's easy! Uh, coming up April 23rd and 24th is the legendary Easter Bonnet competition to benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. You can find more at their website, and I tell you, these people go to some really extreme lengths on their bonnets. Also on April 23rd, we have the Where's Darfur benefit at the Knitting Factory. Musical theater artists, traditional infusion of African dance and drumming, pop recording stars, and political figures are uniting for one night of solidarity for Darfur. Join Robert Lopez, co-writer of Avenue Q, among many performers from many shows. And then on April 30th, it's the New York's Pops Gala. It's their 25th birthday at Carnegie Hall. And applications are available for Camp Broadway's popular programs in New York. This year, the programs will run from July 16th through the 20th and July 30th through August 3rd. Camp Broadway, according to artistic director Tony Paris, is the real deal for theater-loving kids where enthusiasm is the only requirement. We give kids access to the world of Broadway in an ensemble-based program where they can learn important life lessons that they will carry with them always. The only competition at Camp Broadway is for campers to be the best they can be in a safe environment where kids can explore their creativity. Yes, it's all very new-agey. And theatrical and fun. Check it out if your kids are interested. And then uh, I thought I'd mention another podcast. It's called the Las Vegas Podcast, The Strip. I kind of was searching for this when a listener told me about the podcast. Uh, and uh, especially got curious after Paul Vogt was talking about his experience in Las Vegas. Um, the guys on the podcast get a lot of stars from the Vegas productions and different things going around in Vegas. So it's a, a pretty entertaining look at the theater scene at the entertainment scene in Vegas. And if you go there a lot, you might be interested. So uh, you can find the link for that and everything else we talked about in the call board in our show notes. Just go to broadwaybullet.com and find the volume 111 podcast. Sweet charity. Ryan J. Davis. Why are you back here? I'm sick of you. <laughs> you keep having me, Michael. I'll keep coming back. 
So, you've got a very special event going on here. I am directing uh, Mr. Broadway, which was an event created by uh, Jeffrey Self, who's with me as well. And uh, it is a beauty pageant for uh, Broadway actors, uh, kind of like Miss USA or, or Miss America, but it is Mr. Broadway. Brian and I were sitting around one day, and we were talking about um, during the Miss USA scandal and all of that ordeal with uh, Mr. Trump and Miss O'Donnell. And um, we're loving the idea of, a, of doing a beauty pageant with guys from different Broadway shows because there's so many beautiful people in all these shows. And and, and, and we thought, like, you know, I, I can't believe someone hasn't done this before. And it's, such a, it, yeah. Yeah, and it's such a great, like... Um, Format to to kind of play with in that you can it's different than doing just like a concert of 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 these ten guys singing songs because you are still getting something like that, but you're you're getting a sort of a structure in some way. Yeah, and, and and there's definitely a competitive aspect to it. I know that some of the guys have really you know gone out of their way to they're going to try to win Mr. Broadway. I mean, there's definitely a you know brute force. Like, yeah, I mean you know some of the guys here today they pretend to be friends, but deep down they're all like you know who's going to take my crown? Deep like, you down, know they're, they're ready to fight. <laughs> they're ready to fight for it. Now, How's the voting going to go? We, we have a panel of, of three judges who will select a final five out of our ten contestants. And then the audience votes on the final five. So it's up to the audience, a la American Idol. Yeah, you got to have democracy somewhere in America, you know? You've used that quote in every <laughs> interview we've done about this. I have never once used that quote. <laughs> and this is on April 30th? April, April 30th. 30th New World Stages. And so along with this, uh, I assume this is for some sort of benefit. Because you yes, can't it's have a, a special one-night show without benefiting something. You better believe it. Um, it is for the wonderful Ali Fernay Center, which is this great organization based here in New York that uh, provides uh, housing and support for homeless uh, LGBT youth in uh, the New York City area. For and some of our listeners, most of them may be kind of hip to this, but for maybe our listeners in Ohio, what does that stand for? Uh, gay and lesbian and it's bisexual for, and transgender. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can be. Um, <laughs> um, and it's a wonderful organization, and it's oddly a, a very large problem in the city of New York. And uh, the California is really stepping up to the plate to do something about it, and it's really a great thing. Yeah, and your listeners from all over the country, they can visit our website at mrbroadway.org, and there's a link to the Alley Fournay Center there, and they can read all about uh, the organization and, and, and how they can help out. And, and how they can, can help do. out. Yeah. yeah, it's a global problem, but it's a problem especially in big cities like New York and L.A. and San Francisco because people come here because um, they don't have anywhere else to go, and they figure, oh, I'll just go to New York. And so It's easier know, to, to be you know homeless in, in New York. And, than in Bismarck. And, and, yeah, than in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, it is so, uh, or that's what it would seem. So that's uh, where they come. And it's it's going to be a fun. I encourage night. our listeners to you know you can they can go donate online too as well. Totally, absolutely, totally. yeah. The link, there's a link to the website there, and they can donate online, and, and they can read all about the the programs that are offered. Totally, it's a it's a great organization. Now you've also brought three of the contestants in to make their we pleas have. to our audience. Yes, and then after that they're going to. Sing a number for us? Yes. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. There's a new song by Eric Fakar, which is kind of a jingle to uh, Mr. Broadway that we're going to debut today. We have a couple show. original songs in the show. We have songs by Eric Fakar, who um, Eric is from Jacques Brel, musical director for that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Lisa Lambert, who won the Tony last year for The Drowsy Chaperone, is, is writing a song with Glenn Kelly. With Glenn Kelly, who's a terrific uh, songwriter. And a songwriter. And uh, also um, Sean McDaniel and Ben Cohn, who are... Two wonderful guys, right? Um, who are writing a song, Sean. They're both uh, Broadway pit players and have written some shows and are 
currently writing this Tammy Faye Baker musical with us. So they're really great. So there's all kinds of fun original songs, and the guys are singing songs for their talents. A few of them, some of them are doing um, special talents. Special like, talents, absolutely. You know, varied things. We've encouraged somebody to, to breathe fire, but no one has... Yeah, no one's jumped on that, jumped on on that, that yet. train yet. So sadly. we encourage, if you know, if any of the contestants are listening right now, if you can learn to breathe fire or swallow swords in I the bet next you'd two win. weeks... You're probably going to win Mr. Broadway. I bet you win, yeah. Because from what I hear, Judge Seth Rudesky (laughs) enjoys a little fire breathing. Absolutely. (laughs) So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, so should we hear from our contestants now? I would love to. Let's ask them some questions. Yeah, some preliminary (laughs) questions. Mr. Broadway, contestant number one, please introduce yourself. I am Paul McGill. I am from a chorus line. And Paul, if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? This sounds a little little pageanty, but uh, I would change world peace. I think that we have the power as humans to, to change that, and I think we're on our way. And if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? One with strong Christian roots. No, um, <laughs> um, I, would be, I would be a sassafras tree because growing up, I had a sassafras tree outside of my house. I always had to rake the leaves, and it's always smelled so good. That's why. All right. And if you are voted Mr. Broadway, what will be your first change? I don't, I don't know that I really have to change anything. As Mr. Broadway, I want to be able to go into the community, the California Center, Broadway Cares, and outside of Broadway, to represent Broadway to other people, to be the best representative of Broadway that I can be. In reference to a circle, what is pi? 3.14, right? Repeating, repeating, 3.14 repeating. (laughs) Contestant number two, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Frankie James Grande, and I'm in the cast of Mamma Mia. Um, I come from South Florida, and here I am. And if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? That's a very interesting question. I'd have to say I'd put the corporation Disney World in charge of our government because they run extremely efficiently. Thank you. And if you were an animal, what kind of animal would you be? Does it have to be living or could it be extinct? Probably a cheetah. No, I don't want to be a cheetah. i got to think about this. Give me a second. I think I'd have to be a monkey because that's kind of my personality. I mean, I like to climb things and groom other people. And, you know, I just, yeah, definitely a monkey of sorts. Spider monkey? Yeah, definitely spider monkey. It kind of exudes my personality, just high energy and all over the place. And if you are voted Mr. Broadway, what will be your first change? To bring my influence as Mr. Broadway to struggling actors throughout the community by hosting events and parties. That's all I got. Thank you. E equals MC what? Squared. Thank you very much. <laughs> Goodbye. Contestant number three, introduce yourself. My name is Ken Waikua. I'm from Wicked, and I'm 26. Now, if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? I would wave my magic wand and make world peace. And if you were a fossil, what kind of fossil would you be? I would be a fossil of a hippopotamus. I'd be a fossil of a hippo because then I would know what it would be like to be humongous. And if you are Mr. Broadway, what will be your first change? Uh, no more rake stages on Broadway. <laughs> no more rake stages. It's not necessary. It injures people, and we have to... It's got to go. What is the capital of North Dakota? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> 
Can you name a city in North Dakota? Nope. <laughs> I'm from Hawaii. I, and I, you're lucky I know where North Dakota is on the map. I, where is North Dakota on the map? Somewhere <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I thank you for bringing down some of the contestants here for our virtual Mr. Broadway on yes. Broadway Bullet. And again, that is April 30th. April, April 30th, 30th, Monday. New World Stages. New yes. World Stages. MrBroadway.org. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the negative side. Wait a minute, I said negative. Uh, I was just thinking at some of my more sober moments when I don't have a smile on my face. I get depressed about certain things in, in the theater, me being a, a constant theater goer. Uh, certain things, as much as I love everything, certain things bother me a bit. I will vent on that at this present time. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of seeing the show Curtains. Big, splashy musical. Three-minute overture. Yay! Uh, red Velvet Curtain. Great big dance numbers. Great, wonderful songs, you know. The orchestra sounded great, but then I went home and I checked out the program, and I checked out the orchestra personnel, you know. Not one violin in this orchestra. Not one string to be found. Synthesized horns, yes. Strings, no. Were we Broadway organic? Not. It wasn't. And, uh, and in a way you could tell, and you'll probably hear that on the recording unless they augment it with string section. Producers say how expensive it is to bring in an orchestra. Uh, yes, it's expensive. But if you're going to spend a gazillion dollars on a show, give us the real thing. If we're going to spend a gazillion dollars to see it, Give us the real thing. Most of you know my opinion on the dreaded Pirate Queen. I love the show. But when I think about it, 
It's at the Hilton Theater, which seats 1,800 people. Uh, huge orchestra pit. Huge show. One fiddle. Everything else is synthesized. And that show costs $16 million. And people are paying $111 to see it. You know, in a theater where the rear of the orchestra is in a different time zone, you might want to give us a symphony. I think the last big orchestra I've seen in a theater was at the revival of 42nd Street. And that's about six years ago. Uh, in actuality, the, it was great fun because the orchestra actually rose from the pit for the overture. Enjoyed that tremendously. Way back in 1998, you had ragtime. They used, I believe, 30 pieces. It was astounding. It sounded wonderful. And you heard and saw every penny you spent. I don't get it. I remember going to Saturday Night Fever in the humongous Minskoff Theater. Big show, big cast, big sets. We sat first row orchestra. We looked down into the pit. Not one instrument, all keyboards. The only real instruments, a few horns, were backstage. Now, come on, producers, get with it. Give us a real show for a change. Since I've been griping so much, uh, I'm going to bring up one of my major pet peeves on Broadway right now. Possibly the most successful show playing on Broadway is Jersey Boys. And uh, for the $120 they charge for that show, they give us a small band. They give us people who are not major stars. It's true. It's a fun show. It's really great fun. It really brought back memories for me. I welled up at certain points. But we're getting basically for $120 a small show with no stars and no orchestra. I collected Four Seasons records back in the day. And uh, that's what their music was all about. Big arrangements, big sound, strings, horns, everything. Here you get, and in fact, I must say, when they recorded the album, they augmented it with a string section. In the theater, you have no such thing. And that's a $120 ticket. And that's because they can get it. As they say, forgive me for saying this, they ask, why does a dog lick his balls? Because he can. And they can charge $120, and they give you very little for it. I want to add one more thing before I finish. Uh, if you have anything you want me to talk about, or if you have any opinions, if you want to, if you want to argue with me, uh, by the way, I have the right to my own right opinion. Uh, if you want to argue with me, just email me personally at broadwaymarty, one word, broadwaymarty, at aol.com. Once again, this is Marty Cooper, and I'll be back, hopefully, on the positive side next week. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. Flaherty and Aaron's is one of my favorite composition teams, which is one reason why I was anxious to tell you guys about the We Tell the Story benefit concert in last week's episode and bring those performances. But um, there's a show of theirs called A Man of No Importance that I think is shamefully overlooked. It was presented in 2002 at the Lincoln Center Theater, and you know, you just never hear anything about it. And I didn't hear about it. I missed the show, and I liked them. But I, I found the soundtrack recently. I love it. And... Uh, 
I've, I feel it's overlooked, so I wanted to bring it to your attention by playing a song. Um, this song is called Love Who You Love. It's sung by Roger Reese in the show, and here it is. I'm not one to lecture, how could I dare? Someone like me who's been mainly nowhere. But in my experience, be as it may, you just have to love who you love. You just have to love who you love. Your common sense tells you best not begin. But your fool heart cannot help plunging in And nothing and no one can stand in your way You just have to love who you love You just have to love who you love People can be hard sometimes And their words can cut so deep Choose the one you choose, love, and don't lose a moment's sleep. Who can tell you who to want? Who can tell you what you were destined to be? Take it from me. There is no fault in loving, no call for shame. Everyone's heart does exactly the same And once you believe that You learn how to say I love who I love Who I love Then just go and love Who you love A Man of No Importance is released on J Records, and you can find it at Amazon.com and at iTunes.com, as well as many other fine retailers. On the boards. A new political satire, The View from K Street Steak, is opening from Altered Stages and Cine Productions, and we have two of the actors, Brad Thomas and Samantha Wynn, who... In the show is his dummy. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Good. How are you? Now, with Samantha, how, was that typecasting? Uh, have, you, have you played dummies before? No, I haven't played dummies before. Yes, it was typecasting. <laughs> Shush. <laughs> I think people in my family thought it was typecasting, you know, but uh, no, I've played lots of uh, children and boys and girls, so I wouldn't say it was typecasting per se, but. Definitely on that same range of things. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And she is vertically challenged. <laughs> well, you're tall. You're 4'11". <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too deep into all this, uh, maybe maybe you guys can explain a little bit about what the view from K Street Steak is about, besides being a tongue twister of a name. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away, Brad. Okay. Well, uh, like you said, it is a political satire. And I think a lot of people have no idea really what goes on behind closed doors in Washington. 
And this is a hypothesis about what happens, especially between lobbyists and politicians. Is it all really an act, and are they all really puppets in, in one big show? You know, especially today with a lot of dire attitudes about the government and what's happening in the world, it's, it's a fun perspective to take on, you know, what really could be happening. Where did the name, the view from K Street State, come from? K Street is a famous thoroughfare in Washington, from my understanding. I don't know Washington, D.C. very well. Apparently, there are a couple known restaurants where... A lot of politicians meet to talk about things, and it's, you know, like their gathering place. And K Street Steak is, is one of the restaurants. It's a steakhouse. So what has previews been like? How have the audiences been so far? I think most of the people coming in are pretty politically minded yeah. and uh, are picking up on the humor, you know, quite quickly. So uh, that's that's been great. Uh, uh, it, you know, it's it's a real mix of people. So, yeah. and you know, with the weather being the way it is, I don't know if we're getting in all the people that we'd like to get in, but yeah. we'll see. So, yeah. And the weather has been quite crazy for our listeners who can't see us. We're sitting here absolutely just drenched, dripping water right now because of the <laughs> nor'easter. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Samantha, yes. so what's it like playing a dummy? Wow. What's it like? I don't want to say dummy. dummy, just in case anybody's missing it. That's like the ventriloquist dummy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fun. It, 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 the beginning of the show, I think we really set up really that whole persona of being the dummy and um, Brad being the straight man. And then once we get into it, we just, I think we're just really finding our pace and letting go. And I did a lot of, like, research on dif different things with um, Ed 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 Edgar Bergen. Thank you, that too. <laughs> and Charlie McCarthy. And Charlie McCarthy. And just watching um, just some clips and stuff. I didn't see a lot of them. I just heard a lot of their clips because there's not a lot of footage that I could see. But, um, well, I'm sure there are, there is, but I didn't see a lot. But it's been fun. You know, it's definitely something completely different than I've ever done in my entire life. So, And I am the shortest one in the cast. So. You're the shortest person in the city. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> in this political place, you know, do you feel any difference? You know, I don't know, I don't know how long you've been doing things or if you've done anything political in the past, but it seems to me it's just like, you know, the politics in Washington right now is so polarized. It's like like John Stewart in the Daily Show kind of says after having Karl Rove on. It's like our president is president only of the people who elected him, not the others. They don't count. And it, it kind of seems that way. It, it kind of seems like the way are the people who really need to be seeing this, seeing this. Or you know, I love the power of theater to change, but it seems like our president has managed to so polarize our country that people just aren't even willing to go out and check out other views. But myself included, I'll have, to, I'll have to include and say that sometimes I'm a bit closed-minded towards the Republican side. So w how do you see, you know, the role of political theater playing out in this administration? That, that is actually a point that's really made fun of. And, mm -hmm. and there is a, there's a line that talks about how uh, we're all bipartisan now since the election. Because you remember, all, you know, all the politicians were saying, I'm going to reach out and, and work with the other side. Mm -hmm. So really, the, um, the play takes place at a, at a retreat for all the politicians and lobbyists. And so they're all mixing with each other. And so the, the bipartisan label that they chose to put on themselves, you know, during the election is really made fun of. Both sides get it, too. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not heavily weighted toward, you know, making fun of the Republicans or the Democrats. No. Yeah. And you have a couple songs in the show, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I understand you're going to actually you know, do a little acapella version of them here as well. And they're acapella in the show, too, right? They yes, are. They yes. Are. So, so we're getting the versions of the <laughs> uh, songs as a sneak preview here. Uh, what, what's this first one you guys are going to do? It, it's about Viagra. A congressman from Louisiana named Billy Towson got a bill passed so that people couldn't buy cheaper drugs from Canada. And so this is sort of poking fun at that. So don't buy your Viagra from the Frenchies up in Canada. It might be coated anthrax from the terrorists of Al-Qaeda. They'll coat it sweet and sell it cheap to worm it back into God's land again. So don't buy no Viagra from those French whores up in Canada. No, don't Cross the sacred boundary to that Frenchy whole house, Canada. By a senior aphrodisiacs right here in your righteous home. Let no terrorists to cross the hands on sacred pots to roam. By the mock-up, that's Americanest. Be blessedest in bed. Yes, only buy American muck-up, be 100% pure patriot, or you'll pay much more in the afterlife for the pennies that you save. They will damn your soul in the discount afterglow. No, don't buy your Viagra from the Frenchmen of the North. No, they only want your money. They don't care about your soul. They ain't pharmaceutic men of faith like good souls here at Merkwell. They be sent to do great Satan's work from their socialistic hell. So don't buy your Viagra from the Frenchies up in Canada. It might be coated anthrax from the terrorists of Al-Qaeda. Oh, they'll coat it sweet and sell it cheap to sabotage the American way of life. So don't buy your Viagra from those French whores up in Canada. We're at Altered Stages, which is at the 29th Street Rep uh, Theater, uh, 212 West 29th Street, between 7th and 8th Avenue. All right. And uh, where can people get tickets for the show? Um, I think the... Is it show ticks or show facts? Smart ticks. That too. <laughs> I should just watch Sorry, we dog. just opened it. I don't, I, you know, I don't pay attention to that too much. Yeah, but I don't either. I guess we should know. I guess I should have brought a card. I didn't bring a card. <clears throat> I think it's smart ticks. I think you're right. Or you can go to uh, the website for the show, theviewfromkstreetsteak.com. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> and before we go, uh, you guys are going to sing one more song here for us. Uh, what's, does this one need any setup? It's called I Want to Be Rich and Pay No, no Taxes. taxes. Yeah. So okay. I think it's a little self-explanatory. All right. <laughs> oh, I want to be rich and pay no taxes. I want to go wild while you pick up the tab. I want to be rich and fondle the famous. I want a new nose and cream in the cab. I want to do fetish, I want to do shoes, I want to shake off those Middleburg blues. At Rancho Crafardo, I'll ride the big horse. With mommy in the saddle beside me, of, of course, course, of course, of course. Oh, I want to 
be rich and pay no taxes. I don't want to go where the winter gets cold. In my big stretch limo with my fountains and my faxes. I'm headed where the big cigars are rolled. Top of the Trades. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. For all your theater-related news, head to BroadwayWorld.com. First up, we have got a Pulitzer Prize shocker that I'm sure network reality shows are just cursing themselves that they didn't have the rights to this. David Lindsay Abair's Rabbit Hole, which opened in February 2006 at Manhattan Theatre Club's Biltmore Theatre, has won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The five-person jury for the Drama Prize had nominated three plays, Orpheus X by Rindy Eckert, Bull Rusher by Isa Davis, and Elliot, A Soldier's Fugue by Kiera Alegria Hudes. However, the overall Pulitzer Prize board chose to award the prize to a play that hadn't been nominated. You heard it. It wasn't nominated. Sig Gisler, administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes, explained at a press conference that none of the finalists nominated by the jury received a majority vote from the 19-person board. As a result, the board decided to consider a work that was not one of the nominated finalists, which it can do as long as three-fourths of the board votes to do so. Are you okay? And then if you can cross a line through three at the same time, you say... Tic-tac-toe. Uh, <laughs> the board voted to consider Rabbit Hole because Rabbit Hole was mentioned favorably in the jury's report, Gisler said, even though it wasn't nominated. Once the board decided to consider Rabbit Hole, the play then simply needed to receive a majority vote from the board to win. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't believe that. That's that's crazy. And there's uh, three shortlist nominees going, why? Why not me? Including, uh, I was rooting for Kira Allegria Hudes for A Soldier's Fugue, primarily just because she'd been on the show, talking in episode 105 about the book she wrote for In the Heights. Multiple award-winning composer Mark Shaman's Mantle Place just collapsed under the addition of one more award. As Mark Shaman got top billing Tuesday evening, as the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers honored him with the Henry Mancini Award during the 22nd annual ASCAP Film and Television Music Awards at the Kodak Theater in Los Angeles. The invite-only ceremony honored Shaman for his musical creativity in film and television, including the upcoming theatrical adaptation of the Broadway musical Hairspray. A handful of industry friends joined ASCAP President and Chairman Marilyn Bergman on stage to present Shaman with the award, including Billy Crystal and director Rob Reiner. The Paper Mill Playhouse is open for now, as it has generated some paper, but still needs to uh, churn the mill for a little bit more. Ah. That was bad. Due to tremendous community support, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers had its first public performance on Wednesday, April 11th. Audience reaction for the official press opening on Sunday, April 15th was extremely positive, with a show-stopping dance number during the performance receiving thunderous mid-scene applause and a standing ovation at the curtain call. Yeah, that's their press release. <laughs> Since the start of the Paper Mill's aggressive public fundraising drive to save the theater, over 1,600 donors have made contributions and pledges in excess of $750,000, including, alrighty, 100% participation from the Paper Mill Playhouse Board of Trustees. <laughs> that's so good of them. As previously reported, this grassroots generosity and show support will enable Paper Mill Playhouse to proceed with Seven Brides for Seven Brothers at least through Sunday evening. April 22nd. 
Uh-huh. Yep. However, it is still uncertain if the production will be able to complete its run. Diana Clausen, the paper mill's managing director, says, Although the theater is engaged in accelerated negotiations to obtain a bridge loan that would allow us to finish the season, it will likely take a minimum of two weeks to complete the loan process. We need to raise an additional 500000 to get us through the next two weeks of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. So the paper mill is still very far from its fundraising goal. $1.5 million to complete Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and $1.5 million to complete Pirates of Penzance. Mm. Although we have received unprecedented and heartwarming support from the public, we will continue to work round the clock on the many initiatives we have undertaken to save the season and the theater, says board chairman Ken Thorne. I really do wish them the best of luck, as they are one of the premier theater locations outside of New York City. And you thought we forgot. Uh, it may have taken a little bit longer than it did to put together Catherine McPhee's stunning album with American Idol, but the New York Musical Theater Festival will present the solo concert debut of Jacqueline Huberman, winner of the New York Musical Theater Festival's 2006 Broadway Idol competition. The concerts will take place on Tuesday, May 8th at 8 p.m. and Sunday, May 13th at 9 p.m. at Ars Nova in Manhattan. Now, you may remember that we interviewed the top three finalists in a short quip session during the New York Musical Theater Festival and promised a performance, and indeed it will be happening. We should hear a song from Jacqueline Huberman in a short interview next week to help promote the performance. So, wish you congratulations. The concert will feature Huberman in an evening of songs by Stephen Schwartz, Jason Robert Brown, Michael John Lachiza, and Annie DeFranco. The evening is directed by Jim Augustine, with musical director Andy Baronson featured on piano, Dave Purcell on drums, and Tony Steele on bass. You can find links to all the stories we talked about for more information at our show notes for Volume 111 at BroadwayBullet.com. We'll be back next week with more of the top theater stories in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. Well... We have an appropriate story for Curtain Call before we close off, and that is that The Producers is closing its six-year run this weekend on April 22nd. Yes, The Producers, which won the most Tony Awards in history, is done. Its legacy is a grand one. It ushered in the era of over $100 tickets. It ushered in the premium seat, over $400 for a seat. Yes, we love that one. When uh, asked about how he felt that the show was closing, current star Tony Danza said, Hey, I knew I wasn't worth 400 bucks. Mourners can take delight in the fact that Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein will be coming to the stage very soon. I am changing the feedback address because a listener told me that maybe info is too confusing. So I want to invite everybody to comment on the show by writing to feedback at broadwaybullet.com. I am always eager to hear what you think, your suggestions, who you would like to hear from, who you want me to track down, just in general what you think. So, once again, the new one is feedback at broadwaybullet.com. We'll be back next week with some great stuff. We got some, <laughs> a lot of things are getting juggling and rescheduled, but it is looking like we got uh, somebody from Mary Poppins should be coming on. It looks like we're going to be talking to Stephanie J. Block. Uh, yeah, we got a lot of good things coming up shortly, so definitely stay tuned and don't miss an episode. Again, if you're not, subscribe. Subscribe in iTunes. It's easy and you don't miss an episode. Well, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until next week, I thank you guys for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet with me. Well,
I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. If I see one more Christmas carol regionally, that Dickens hey. has made enough money in the up. Many minutes trying to sell myself with no shame. But we kept all the jokes that made people laugh from before. And so the ones that didn't. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.